So my name is Jason. Um, you guys have come to Land and Table events before. Land and Table, um, we've been doing that since late 2011. Monthly potlucks for that many years. It's been a long time. Um, this is not a Land and Table thing just because um, I've always envisioned Land and Table being kind of a neutral setting where uh, anyone who's interested in local food sustainable agriculture, stuff like that, can participate. Um, these events under our project, Terra Numa, is, is more related to faith, um, and is more wrestling with the idea of our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, and our relationship with the earth, which is often forgotten <laughs> in the realm of faith. Um, but sort of the idea is how do we cultivate kind of a holistic uh, life, you know, that encompasses how how uh, Jesus has invited us into his kingdom. Um, Wendell Berry is one of those strange um, guys who is writing from a Christian perspective, but he is not writing as a theologian. He's not writing as someone who um, is pretending to be I don't even know if he goes to church, you know what I mean? Like if he's a part of a church community, I guess, I don't, but he's not like a, an especially evangelistic guy. He's, he's not out there to um, sort of present the gospel kind of in the traditional sense, and yet he is speaking to, um, it appeals to people from every political persuasion, um, and I guess that's because he, um, he is basically, he's writing about environmental um, you know, he's, he's kind of uh, an environmental activist in many ways. Um, but because he's such a pro prolific writer, I don't know. Have you guys read his, um, I've read a lot of his essays, some of his poetry, but he's a novelist. Most Have you read? Like, most of his fiction. Okay. Yeah. I, I just, my, my wife reads more fiction than I, so she's, she's kind of read his stuff, but I've, but even his uh, fiction has been pulled apart uh, by its, its agrarian sort of communal philosophy. So that's kind of a, um, so he's a poet, essayist, uh, novelist, uh, farmer, you know. He went off to Kentucky University or whatever, and he, he even taught for a time in the university, and then he ended up back on the farm. Um, and he's been writing ever since. If you don't know about the Berry Center, mm -hmm. you've heard of uh, the Berry Center? I went, was there last year. Really? Yeah. What did you do there? Um, they were having readings there for one of their, um, this in probably November. Yeah, this year for one. Dad's birthday was last November, and they have something there with their reading program that they do. Oh, that's great. So, yeah, it was great. It was wonderful to be there. And awesome. I saw them sitting in the diner. I was like, I know who you are. <laughs> Breathe the same air as <laughs> It's pretty cool. That's great. But we missed the part where I, I don't know if he was even speaking that day. His daughter's running that mm -hmm. part of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, I read a. Uh, what's that? What? It's in Newcastle, Kentucky. Okay. Yeah, so it's near, I guess, where they live. It's, it's near. Not really. It's not. No, it was about an hour from Louisville, hour and a half. Yeah. Right, so his, his daughter's continuing the, the mm -hmm. um, sort of the, 
um, which encompasses not just Wendell's uh, writings and activities, but also Wendell's father and brother as well, I guess, sort of this idea of the, the family. Wendell was sort of writing in the context of his family's agricultural and, and just communal life, right? So it's kind of, kind of a big vision. Um, I, uh, I had a, a, uh, a, a book, um, it was like a book catalog, it was called Cumberland, Cumberland Books, and it was this unassuming catalog, just, I don't know if you've ever had a magazine that sort of impacted your life before, but Cum the Cumberland Books catalog, um, I don't know how I got my hands on it, but maybe Pam, like, you know, wrote a way for it and it got sent to us. And they, it was just full of all this, like, agrarian stuff and these other, like, book recommendations and all, because they sold books. And um, it's now defunct. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they are no longer, but there are um, audio recordings, actually, uh, online that are very, very esque very interesting. I'll have to share those. Um, but I stumbled into this, this guy named Wendell Berry, and I was like, who is this guy? And I started looking him up. We moved onto a farm out in Sedalia, and um, this was over 10 years ago. And um, I read The Unsettling of America. Have you guys read that? Part of it. Part of it. He wrote it like in the 70s, I guess. Yeah, that's yeah, it's one of the quintessential, like, sort of, he's on a soapbox, and he's like, for me, it opened up sort of a vision of society that I, I felt like I was missing. Um, and since then, I've, I'm not even a very good, I'm not very studious, uh, I'm not a studious student of Wendell Berry. <laughs> I haven't read all of his things, but... Um, I did get my hands on The Art of Commonplace, which is a set of essays, and you can find some of these essays in other collections as well. Um, tonight's is actually, I think, from, I think the book Sex Economy and Freedom or something like that, um, which is another set of, of essays. Um, this essay is called Christianity and the Survival of Creation. And, the reason why I wanted to bring this up, um, this was actually delivered as a lecture at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, which is very interesting. So he's, he's talking to, I guess, seminary people and, and this type of thing. Um, so there's, there's a number of sections, um, and um, after each section, I'm going to pause for comments. We have section one, section two, there's three, Say when it's written. four, there's five. There's five sections, and they're short. What's that? Say when it's written. I think it was written in like 93 or something. Um, 92. Written 92. Um, the reason why I wanted to bring this kind of to the floor was because um, it's a bit of a bombshell for um, just bad thinking. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start. Obviously, you know, if reading goes on too long, all of us start to, you know, your brain starts to go up. What do I need to give this door, you know? 
stuff like that. So that's why I'm going to pause at each section and um, and then open the floor for comments and then go to the next section. Um, Shane, why are you reading this particular section? So basically, um, he is presenting a um, he's a bit of an arsonist to the idea that being people of faith and being, he's particularly speaking to Christians, right? But it, it could be, and he's right, he'll say it in here, he's like, I'm not sort of a preacher, but uh, my tradition is as a Christian. Um, but he's presenting this idea that the, the environmentalists and the conservationists have accused Christianity, have accused Christianity of, of, participating in the destruction of creation. Okay. And so his whole premise is um, he's shooting arrows kind of at the... Leaders um, of Christianity. Well, no, at the thinking that is driving our behavior. Right? So... Well, he's sitting there at Louisville Seminary, though. He's talking about things. <laughs> Remember <laughs> that. Yes, yes. That's, That's huge. Right, yes. Okay. Much like maybe Jesus would be sitting with Pharisees or whatever and, and yeah. saying, hey guys, let me just say, you know, so. Right. The, the, so you, you get the picture. Wendell Berry, this farmer, grand writer, he, he's, he's standing among these theologians and seminary folks when delivering this. So, part one. Part one, Christianity and the survival of creation. I want to begin with a problem. Namely, that the culpability of Christianity in the destruction of the natural world and the uselessness of Christianity in any effort to correct that destruction are now established cliches of the conservation movement. This is a problem for two reasons. First, the indictment of Christianity by the anti-Christian conservationists is in many respects just. For instance, the complicity of Christian priests preachers and missionaries in the cultural destruction and the economic exploitation of the primary peoples of the Western Hemisphere, as of traditional cultures around the world, is notorious. Throughout the 500 years since Columbus's first landfall in the Bahamas, the evangelist has walked beside the conqueror and the merchant, too often blandly assuming that their causes were the same. Christian organizations to this day remain largely indifferent to the rape and plunder of the world and of its traditional cultures. It is hardly too much to say that most Christian organizations are as happily indifferent to the ecological, cultural, and religious implications of industrial economics as are most industrial organizations. The certified Christian seems just as likely as anyone else to join the military-industrial conspiracy to murder creation. The conservationist indictment of Christianity is a problem. <clears throat> Second, because however just it may be, it does not come from an adequate understanding of the Bible and the cultural traditions that descend from the Bible. The anti-Christian conservationists characteristically deal with the Bible by waving it off. And this dismissal conceals as such dismissals are apt to do an ignorance that invalidates it. The Bible is an inspired book written by human hands. As such, it is certainly subject to criticism. But the anti-Christian environmentalists have not mastered the first rule of the criticism of books. You have to read them before you criticize them. 
Our predicament now, I believe, requires us to learn to read and understand the Bible in the light of the present fact of creation. This would seem to be a requirement both for Christians and for everyone concerned, but it entails a long work of true criticism, that is, of careful and judicious study, not dismissal. It entails, furthermore, the making of very precise distinctions between biblical instruction and the behavior of those peoples supposed to have been biblically instructed. I cannot pretend, obviously, to have made so meticulous a study. Even if I were capable of it, I would not live long enough to do it. But I have attempted to read the Bible with these issues in mind, and I see some virtually catastrophic discrepancies between biblical instruction and Christian behavior. I don't mean disreputable Christian behavior either. The discrepancies I see are between biblical instruction and allegedly respectable Christian behavior. If because of these discrepancies Christianity were dismissible, there, were, there would, of course, be no problem. We could simply dismiss it along with the 20 centuries of unsatisfactory history attached to it and start setting things to rights. The problem emerges only when we ask, where then would we turn for instruction? We might, let us suppose, turn to another religion, a recourse that is sometimes suggested by the anti-Christian conservationists. Buddhism, for example, is certainly a religion that could guide us toward a right respect for the natural world, our fellow humans and our fellow creatures. I owe considerable debt myself to Buddhism and Buddhists, but there are an enormous number of people, and I am one of them, whose native religion, for better or worse, is Christianity. We were born to it. We began to learn about it before we became conscious. It is, whatever we think of it, an intimate belonging of our being. It informs our consciousness, our language, and our dreams. We can turn away from it or against it, but that will only bind us tightly to a reduced version of it. A better possibility is that this, our native religion, should survive and renew itself so that it may become as largely and truly instructive as we need it to be. On such a survival and renewal of the Christian religion may depend the survival of the creation that is its subject. End of part one. The floor is open for comments. Or just pause it. <laughs> Yeah, when you look it up, um, in, the, in the Facebook event, I actually posted a link, but you can find it just by looking up, looking up Christianity and the Survival of Creation. If you look up that title, it's on a website called Cross Currents, um, and they, they posted the whole essay there. I think the, the library system, their hoopla service, has a lot of his essays and catalogs. Really? And I think Art of the Commonplace is one of them. So. That's great. I didn't know that. So he said, basically, he said, uh, I'm a Christian, I'm born with Christianity. Christianity has participated, not as Christians, but as the folks historically who have abused creation and people. That's what I got out of that in a sentence. Yeah. 
you said it so much better. <laughs> but I'm saying that's basically what I've got. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, I, I think the additional point that he makes um, is um, he seems to be saying as well that um, it's, it's because Christians aren't living according to the Bible, what the Bible actually says that, that is, is the cause of this. Oh, yeah. And he said that evidently people hadn't been instructed correctly. <clears throat> One remark, though, I'll make because of our experience that he said something in there that's uh, there was a premise that uh, maybe the Buddhists had something that was better, or these people. And what, what we've seen is like there's Christians here who embrace uh, embrace environmentalism. Mm -hmm. you know, well, there's a lot of Christians, mm -hmm. particularly in this area, but there, there are. Mm -hmm. And uh, and who embrace uh, you know back to the garden theology that type of thing. And you'll find those Buddhists. And you'll find Hindus like that. But we've sat down in, in the Himalayas with people like that who are very interested in the crops and, and want to regenerate crops and, and but not do what uh, folks have done over the last 20 years. Kids leaving the, the villages and stuff. And we can bring the same thing with some Muslim folks we know. And in same course, there's Muslims who will extrapolate the land, you know, off of property. Mm -hmm. And there's Buddhists who are as bad as Muslims. And there's Hindus. <laughs> Who is bad as Buddhists, mm -hmm. and there's apparently Christians who is bad as all those people. <laughs> and so uh, the default isn't religion, <clears throat> the default is the, uh, the practice of it. Mm -hmm. So and it's the same thing in Christianity. That's what he just said. It's I good. So. Right. Yeah. So, thank you for quoting me on that. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I appreciate that. Right. And so because he's pointing out that my tradition is basically Christianity, I'm, I'm speaking from that, and that, that's sort of what he, what his, um, where he shoots his, his, his arrows. Did you find it? Do you think he knows he was in Bible history? Yeah, I'm sure. He, you know, approached someone and asked his group? I don't think he ever... My understanding of Wendell Berry is he's not someone who is seeking to speak. It's just he's invited to speak. But that was 93. 92. 92. Right. So back then he might have still been going around and doing that kind of stuff more than he would be now. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what the, his rate of, of speaking is. I mean, I know he's probably slowed down because he's older now, of mm -hmm. course, but... Um, but yeah, he's he's spoken at so many different mm -hmm. settings, you know, in, in so many different settings. If you guys are not, um, I would love to do a, a movie night of um, the Wendell Berry movie that came out. It's, it's a documentary. Um, I think it's called The Seer. Is that what it's called? Am I mistaken? I don't know. You can you can look it up. Those of you that folks. Um, I haven't even seen it yet. I mean, I've only seen pieces of it. But this uh, this this woman filmmaker wanted to make a documentary documentary about Wendell Berry, and he did not want to be on camera. So she had to make a movie about Wendell Berry with Wendell Berry without him appearing in the movie. So it's just his his voice is in the movie. It's it's not 
the seer, yeah. Oh, look and see. Is that? No, there's both here. I think it changed titles, I think, at uh, one point. Yeah, portrait of Wendell Berry by Laura Dunn. Yeah, I, th I think it was originally called The Seer, and then it got changed to Look and See. And part of that, and part of that too. Yeah, I mean, it, it got shown all over. Yeah, it didn't get shown locally, and I don't think, which is, um, I'd like to correct that. But um, Wendell Berry's space for writing, he had this multi pane glass window in his writing. Little, he had this little writing house. And uh, the Berry Center's logo actually is that window. And it's sort of metaphorical of, you know, Wendell Berry's kind of multifaceted view of, of the world through these multi panes. Any other comments? We're going to move to part two. This is, this is, it gets hotter as it goes, so look out. Um, <clears throat> part two. If we read the Bible, keeping in mind the desirability of these two survivals, of Christianity and the creation, we are apt to discover several things about which modern Christian organizations have kept remarkably quiet or to which they have paid little attention. We will discover that we humans do not own the world or any part of it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. There is in our human law, undeniably, the concept and right of land ownership. But this, I think, is merely an expedient to safeguard the mutual belonging of people and places, without which there can be no lasting and conserving human communities. This right of human ownership is limited by mortality and by natural constraints on human intention and responsibility. It quickly becomes abusive when used to justify large accumulations of real estate. And perhaps for that reason, such large accumulations are forbidden in the 25th chapter of Leviticus. In biblical terms, the landowner, quote unquote, is the guest and steward of God. And he quotes scripture that says, the land is mine, for ye are strangers and sojourners with me, end quote. We will discover that God made not only the parts of creation that we humans understand and approve, but all of it. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we must credit God with the making of biting and stinging insects, poisonous serpents, weeds, poisonous weeds, dangerous beasts, and disease-causing microorganisms. That we may disapprove of these things does not mean that God is in error or that he ceded some of the work of creation to Satan. It means that we are deficient in wholeness, harmony, and understanding. That is, we are fallen. We will discover that God found the world as he made it to be good, that he made it for his pleasure, and that he continues to love it and to find it worthy despite its reduction and corruption by us. People who quote John 3.16 as an easy formula for getting to heaven neglect to see the great difficulty implied in the statement that the advent of Christ was made possible by God's love for the world. Not God's love for heaven, or for the world as it might be, but for the world as it was and is. Belief in Christ is thus dependent on prior belief in the inherent goodness 
the lovability of the world. We will discover that the creation is not in, in any sense independent of the creator, the result of a primal creative act long over and done with, but is the continuous constant participation of all creatures in the being of God. Elihu said to Job that if God gathered unto himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh shall perish together. And Psalm 104 says, Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created. Creation is thus God's presence in, cre in creatures. The Greek Orthodox theologian Philip Sherard has written that creation is nothing less than the manifestation of God's hidden being. This means that we and all other creatures live by a sanctity that is inexpressibly intimate. For to every creature the gift of life is a portion of the breath and spirit of God. As the poet George Herbert put it, Thou art in small things great, not small in any, for thou art infinite in one and all. We will discover that for these reasons, our destruction of nature is not just bad stewardship or stupid economics, or a betrayal of family responsibility, it is the most horrid blasphemy. It is flinging God's gift into his face as if they were of no worth beyond that assigned to them by our destruction of them. To Dante, despising nature and her goodness was a violence against God. We have no entitlement from the Bible to exterminate or permanently destroy or holding contempt anything on the earth, or in the heavens above it, or in the waters beneath it. We have the right to use the gifts of nature, but not to ruin or waste them. We have the right to use what we need, but no more, which is why the Bible forbids usury and, and, and forbids great accumulations of property. The usurer, Dante said, condemns nature, for he puts his hope elsewhere. William Blake was biblically correct then when he said that everything that lives is holy. And Blake's great commentator, Kathleen Rain, was correct, both biblically and historically, when she said that the sense of holiness of life is the human norm. The Bible leaves no doubt at all about the sanctity of the act of world-making, or of the world that was made, or of creaturely or bodily life in this world. We are holy creatures living among other holy creatures, in a world that is holy. Some people know this, and some do not. Nobody, of course, knows it all the time. But what keeps it from being far better known, oh, but what keeps it from being far better known than it is? Why is it apparently unknown to millions of professed students of the Bible? How can modern Christianity have so solemnly folded its hands while so much of the work of God was and is being destroyed. End of part two. Comments. He says, we are holy creatures living among other holy creatures in a world that is holy. Why do so many professed students of the Bible not comprehend this? Because they're professed students of the Bible and not Spirit of God. Mm. When you reduce everything down to words on paper, you can manipulate them any way you want mm. and interpret them any way you want. And they miss the Spirit of God completely. Mm. 
what I'm saying. Wow. Wow. Both of those are like two sides of the same coin. They're, they're manipulating words on paper. I'm sure not sitting outside on the deck mm. <laughs> or sitting out on the grass. They're, they're not going outside. Mm. That's huge. Not, not listening to the Spirit and not... Um, it's interesting that both of your comments, um, God has given the Holy Spirit for us to know the mind of God. Right? And, to, and to know God, to live in the spirit of Jesus. Um, creation has also been called, the um, theologians have, have said, there's two books of God. One is scripture and one is creation. Well, creation is the only way that God speaks to man. Right. There's only seven ways God speaks to man. Scriptures and say that. Scriptures are supposed to be written on our hearts. <coughs> right. Right. But I'm thinking about the people who came to America and the first time they said, why is it in Christianity came? The whole idea was prevailing with, uh, you know, I want a free place to worship. And now, I mean, the people got these huge tracts on land when they came to America. I mean, huge tracts, massive, massive, you know, tracts. Then they're, then they're going west and getting these huge tracts of land. And so it's built into the American psyche that more is available somewhere. We get that. And then, you know, we have the, the refugees that come in and they want more, so they want to get out. I mean, everybody wants to come because it was bad in, in Europe, you know, and they were oppressed in Europe. And so now they can do capitalism. Now they can make something out of themselves. And, and they do stuff. And I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying that's the psyche of the American person. You know, I'm free, I'm independent, and I can live the American dream. And so there's been a supplanting of uh, that to some extent. Mm -hmm. Because now prosperity and abundance is as much uh, a part of Christianity as and, and people won't quote Leviticus and the, uh, the year of Jubilee at all. They will quote uh, air, you know, somebody getting all kinds of herds and slaves and all that kind of stuff. David being increased, they won't quote the other stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of you need somebody to Pizza cutter will work great. I have this. You can use this. <laughs> I, I'm intrigued by the pizza cutter. In case you need that, I'll leave that for you. Well, the other thing is the idea of when, when Christians say today, you know, we're supposed to have scripture written on our hearts, what they mean is they're going to memorize a bunch of scripture and get it mind. Right. Right. And the heart part is out of it. And that's why they don't relate. To what they see around them, because right. that's a, <clears throat> a heart relation. Mm -hmm. You can't read a tree, <laughs> you can't read the clouds. It's a heart relation, and we're not used to that. We're used to a mental mm -hmm. connection with God, and so all the other gets set aside. Right. And so we relate to everything in, I guess, more of a commercial, you know, rote. Type of like a utilitarian almost. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, also, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say the year of Jubilee. If you lost your land, you got it back every 50 years. Like mm -hmm. if that was your family land right. in the year of Jubilee, you'd get that land back. <clears throat> so that long or 70? Okay. Well, whatever the year of Jubilee is, 
you you so that longevity of that staying in your family mm-hmm. that's important too that we don't have mm. yeah we see that a lot in this county you know where the kids don't want the land mm-hmm. you know or you can't afford to keep the farm because things aren't going well economically they pass it to other hands mm-hmm. and then uh, there's sort of this discontinuity of understanding of knowledge of of just you know the intimate involvement with the land you know um, we went from living on a farm for 10 years that friends of ours owned to living in town here just down the road and the amount of time we spend indoors has exponentially increased. And we almost never see our neighbors outside, except to get, you know, you, you go out the door, you get in the car. <laughs> Fortunately, we have a giant, amazing tree in the backyard that is probably one of the oldest trees, you know. I mean, it's just, it's amazing, an amazing tree. Um, but, but, you know, ignoring the spirit, not being outside, it just, there's something that it does to us that it almost distorts our ability to relate to, to God, almost. I think the other thing is, and he's, he's going to say this as we go on, so I'm, I'm not going to prolong this comment, but the idea of seeing, uh, the idea of the prevailing concept that, that God lives in a temple, and that if you want to meet with God, you go to a temple, precludes an understanding that God is involved in creation. Because where do you go to meet with God? You go indoors, right? It's within the walls of the building. Um, and he's actually going to take a pot shot at that a little bit in just a minute. Go Wendell. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, this, this, this for me is a little bit of a, you know, a, a setting off a series of ballistic missiles. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm just thinking about all those Baptist students, theological students sitting there and hearing this. Oh, I'm sure. This this is like, yeah, that's right, that's good, this makes sense, all, you know, Mm -hmm. this this part, because it's up here. Where you start slamming them a little bit more, it's going to get harder. I think think there's going to, there's some squirming in the audience, uh, for sure. I want to share something uh, that's a because Diane and I have been uh, Christians for a really long time and travel all different places and stuff. But back in uh, 2005, we moved down to uh, outside of Boone, North Carolina. This is especially relevant because we live in Lynchburg, or near Lynchburg, Virginia. This is Bedford, of course. but. Um, and we are dealing with very entrenched beliefs about what it means to be a Christian and what, it, what that means is if you're a real Christian, you cannot care about creation. That, that has been clearly stated by um, some very prominent individuals in, 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 in with, a, with a national platform um, and it's not really it's the issue wasn't that it wasn't that that person was articulating that it was that that person was articulating this 
a belief that is widespread and prominent in in the body of Christ. And it's it's why this is an extremely relevant um, pill to swallow again now. This was written in 92, probably even more relevant then. Now, of course, there are more of us who have gone, whoa, if I'm really going to follow Jesus, maybe there's more to it than, than just sort of going, being a churchgoer, right? Um, and yet not everyone has understands what he's even saying here, right? So, mm-hmm. so there's still some squirming to do. Final comments on this front. This is part three. The janitor still could be here. I'm okay, man. <laughs> <laughs> he was here when I came in. I was just like, who are you? It's <laughs> like, I guess you're supposed to be here. I thought I was supposed to be here. Uh, this is part three. He says, obviously, the sense of the holiness of life is not compatible with an exploitive economy. You cannot know that life is holy if you are content to live from economic practices that daily destroy life and diminish its possibility. And many, if not most, Christian organizations now appear to be perfectly at peace with the military-industrial economy and its quote-unquote scientific destruction of life. Surely, if we are to remain free, and if we are to remain true to our religious inheritance— we must maintain a separation between church and state. But if we are to to maintain any sense or coherence or meaning in our lives, we cannot tolerate the present utter disconnections between religion and economy. By economy, I do not mean economics, which is the study of money-making, but rather the way of human housekeeping, the ways by which the human household is situated and maintained within the household of nature. To be uninterested in economy is to be uninterested in the practice of religion. It is to be uninterested in culture and in character. Probably the most urgent question now faced by people who would adhere to the Bible is this. What sort of economy would be responsible to the holiness of life? What for Christians would be the economy, the practices, and the restraints of right livelihood? I do not believe that organized Christianity now has any idea. I think its idea of a Christian is of a Christian economy is no more or less than the industrial economy, which is an economy firmly founded on the seven deadly sins and the breaking of all ten of the Ten Commandments. Obviously, if Christianity is going to survive as more than a respecter and comforter of profitable iniquities, then Christians regardless of their organizations, are going to have to interest themselves in economy, which is to say, in nature and in work. They're going to have to give workable answers to those who say we cannot live without this economy that is destroying us and our world, who see the murder of creation as the only way of life. The holiness of life is obscured to modern Christians, Also by the idea that the only holy place is the built church, which is what I said a few minutes ago. This idea may be more taken for granted than taught. Nevertheless, Christians are encouraged from childhood to think of the church building as God's house. And most of them 
could think of their houses or farms or shops or factories as holy places only with great effort and embarrassment. It is understandably difficult for modern Americans to think of their dwellings and workplaces as holy, because most of these are in fact places of desecration, deeply involved in the ruin of creation. The idea of the exclusive holiness of church buildings is of course wildly incompatible with the idea which the churches also teach that God is present in all places to hear prayers. It is incompatible with scripture. The idea that a human artifact could contain or confine God was explicitly repudiated by Solomon in his prayer at the dedication of the temple. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. And these words of Solomon were remembered a thousand years later by St. Paul preaching at Athens. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said. That was a quote from Paul. Idolatry always reduces to the worship of something made with hands, something confined within the terms of human work and human comprehension. Thus Solomon and St. Paul both insisted on the largeness and the at-largeness of God, setting him free, to, so to speak, from ideas about him. He is not to be fenced in under human control like some domestic creature. He is the wildest being in existence. The presence of his spirit in us is our wildness, our oneness with the wilderness of creation. That is why subduing the things of nature to human purposes is so dangerous, and why it so often results in evil, in separation, and desecration. It is why the poets of our tradition so often have given nature the role, not only of mother or grandmother, but of the highest earthly teacher and judge, a figure of mystery and great power. Jesus' own specifications for his church have nothing at all to do with masonry and carpentry, but only with people. His church is where two or three are gathered together in my name. The Bible gives exhaustive and sometimes exhausting attention to the organization of religion, the building and rebuilding of the temple, its furnishings, the orders, duties, and paraphernalia of the priesthood, the orders of rituals and ceremonies, but that does not disguise the fact that the most significant religious events recounted in the Bible do not occur in temples made with hands. The most important religion in that book is unorganized and is sometimes profoundly disruptive of organization. From Abraham to Jesus, the most important people are not priests, but shepherds, soldiers, property owners, workers, housewives, queens and kings, manservants and maidservants, fishermen, prisoners, whores, even bureaucrats. The great visionary encounter did not take place in temples, but in sheep pastures, in the desert, in the wilderness, on the mountains, on the shores of rivers and the sea, in the middle of the sea, in prisons. And however strenuously the divine voice prescribed rites and observances, it just as strenuously repudiated them when they were taken to be religion. 
believe this is quoting from Isaiah or Jeremiah. Your new moons and your appointed feasts in my soul, uh, my soul hate it. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Religion, according to this view, is less to be celebrated in rituals than practiced in the world. I don't think it is enough appreciated how much an outdoor book the Bible is. It is a hypothetical. What is that word? Do you know that word? Hypothetical. It is a hypothetical book, such as Thoreau talked about, a book open to the sky. It is best read and understood outdoors, and the farther outdoors, the better. Or that has been my experience of it. Passages that within walls seem improbable or incredible, outdoors seem merely natural. This is because outdoors we are confronted everywhere with wonders. We see that the miraculous is not extraordinary, but the common mode of existence. It is our daily bread. Whoever really has considered the lilies of the field or the birds of the air and pondered the improbability of their existence in this warm world within the cold and empty stellar distances will hardly balk at the turning of water into wine, which was, after all, a very small miracle. We forget the greater and still continuing miracle by which water with soil and sunlight is turned into grapes. It is clearly impossible to assign holiness exclusively to the built church without denying holiness to the rest of creation, which is then said to be secular. You skipped the paragraph. In this book, this is what I have. Okay. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what, what's been added or... Uh... Okay. It's all right, man. Okay. I'm not attached. There's nothing else <clears throat> It is clearly impossible to assign holiness exclusively to the built church without denying holiness to the rest of creation, which is then said to be secular. <clears throat> the world which God looked at and found entirely good, we find none too good to pollute entirely and destroy piecemeal. The church then becomes a kind of preserve of holiness from which certified lovers of God assault and plunder the secular earth. Not only does this repudiate God's approval of his work, it refuses also to honor the Bible's explicit instruction to regard the works of the creation as God's revelation of himself. The, ass the assignation of holiness exclusively to the built church is therefore logically accompanied by the assignation of revelation exclusively to the Bible. That is quite a mouthful there. Psalm 19 begins... The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth, showeth his handiwork. The word of God has been revealed in facts from the moment of the third verse of the first chapter of Genesis. Let there be light, and there was light. And St. Paul states the rule, The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Yet, from this free, generous, and sensible view of things, we come to the idolatry of the book. The idea that nothing is true that cannot be and has not been already written. 
The misuse of the Bible thus logically accompanies the abuse of nature. If you're going to destroy creatures without respect, you will want to reduce them to materiality. You will want to deny that there is spirit or truth in them, just as you will want to believe that the only holy creatures, the only creatures with souls are humans, or even only Christian humans. By denying spirit and truth to the non-human creation, modern proponents of religion have legitimized a form of blasphemy without which the nature and culture-destroying machinery of the industrial economy could not have been built. That is, they have legitimized bad work. Good human work honors God's work. Good work uses no thing without respect, both for what it is in itself and for its origin. It uses neither tool nor material that it does not respect and that it does not love. It honors nature as a great mystery and power, as an indispensable teacher, and as the inescapable judge of all work of human hands. It does not disassociate life and work, or pleasure and work, or love and work, or usefulness and beauty. To work without pleasure or affection, to make a product that is not both useful and beautiful, is to dishonor God, nature, the thing that is made, and whomever it is made for. This is blasphemy, to make shoddy work of the work of God. But such blasphemy is not possible when the entire creation is understood as holy, and when the works of God are understood as embodying and thus revealing His Spirit. In the Bible, we find none of the industrialist contempt or hatred for nature. We find instead a poetry of awe and reverence and profound cherishing. As in these verses from Moses' valedictory blessing of the twelve tribes. And of Joseph he said, Blessed of the Lord be his land for the precious things of heaven, for the dew and for the deep that croucheth beneath, and for the precious fruits brought forth by the sun, and for the precious things put forth by the moon, and for the chief things of the ancient mountains, and for the precious things of the lasting hills, and for the precious things of the earth and fullness thereof, and for the goodwill of him that dwelt in the bush. End of part three. That was a long part. Man. That was a long part. That was a long part. He, he's starting to pull some punches that, that are, that I think there's some blood being drawn here, a little bit. <clears throat> he starts to talk about work. He, he, he talks about the impossibility of misusing the Bible. He says, the misuse of the Bible thus logically accompanies the abuse of nature. So, getting into this whole thing of, of not just reading the Bible, but, but distorting Scripture um, to ignore what is he's saying is just it's it's all throughout the scripture, which is basically the, the honoring of God's handiwork in creation. He mentioned something there again. He mentioned it last time. He called called it right living. Mm -hmm. You know that's a Buddhist tenet of, of to practice right living. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the, I know he's equating it in a different way, but it's, he's saying to live in harmony with creation and honor. That's basically what a Buddhist tenet is also, to do it that way. You wouldn't, you wouldn't take a job at a factory that made landmines. Right. If you were a Buddhist, or truly practicing Buddhist. Mm -hmm. you know? And you can turn it over and say, well, I wouldn't take a job that would cut off that mountain, <laughs> you know, and strip mine. Yeah, which Wendell Berry has very vocally spoken against. Yeah, being from West Virginia. 
just saying. Uh, I, I noted that in there. Uh, I think that's really kind of interesting that he capitalizes, you know, makes it proper creation in nature and everywhere he writes it. It's a capital C or capital N. That is interesting. I have um, a pastor friend in Brazil, Claudio Alper, and he said, uh, he says, isn't it interesting the words that we use to talk about what God has made? Think about it. We call it the environment, right? We call it the environment. We call it nature. We call it... Uh, what are some of the other words that he just pointed out? It's interesting that, that his point is similar probably to Barry in that it's like the word that you use for creation is is based on your relationship to it, right? So if it's something that you use, um, natural resources, right, is betraying actually what it is. You're just imposing your own identity on it as if it only exists for your use, um, which I, I think Barry is... He's, he's saying such similar things. It's just, it's interesting that he uses the word blasphemy so many times. He just, <laughs> yeah, I was kind of looking at that. It says to work without pleasure or affection to make a product that is not both useful and beautiful is to dishonor God. This is a blasphemy to make shoddy work of the work of God. You know, is is this Wendell Berry using hyperbole, or is is he really is he really? You well, know? you can see no, that's that you can see that in scripture. You can first of it doesn't matter what it's the sacrifice, it doesn't matter what it's the just scale, it doesn't matter what it's justice, it doesn't even matter it's you know, God God of justice, God is honored by his creation. I, don't know, I think I could follow that. There was something at the beginning about idolatry in this section. It says man takes, man it all, ends up worshiping. Right, all but it's all, it's man made. Man -made. Yeah, it's all what we idolize is man made. He says idolatry always reduces to the worship of something made with hands, something confined within the terms of human work and human comprehension. <clears throat> But he extends that to ideas about God, even. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, it's difficult. So many times in the area, I hear that, and I'll, and I'll challenge this, because he says here, uh, we, we refuse to, uh, we refuse to make uh, secular things sacred sometimes, you know. And, and uh, people talk about pro-life, and, and one of the things I always ask them, I say, you know, are you, and what are you talking about when you say that? He goes, all life is sacred. Because he's saying that. He's saying all life is sacred. And you have to dehumanize other things and be picky and choosy about a pro-life. So I'll give you this. All life is sacred. Yeah, if we're pro-life, we're going to be for immigrants as well as the unborn. It, it's, hard, it's hard to draw a line and say... Well, you're going to be pro-life for your enemies, too, to some extent. You're going to all that. You know, it's life is sacred, period. And not just humans. Right. He said animals. Talking about animals, we're talking about all creation, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, it's the gender. But I told you one thing, one last thing. I, I shared with you a book. 
about the thing that happened in the 50s. And, uh, and it was where, after uh, Roosevelt and all the social programs that came on to get people out of the depression, these capitalists all got together. And there was this great mass market, three huge capitalists, J.C. Penney and all these guys. They got together in Chicago. There was this huge program that took place in order to mobilize pastors nationwide. And their goal was to come against the idea of communism or socialism mm -hmm. right, and make that an enemy because the Cold War was starting to come on. Right. Right, and to make capitalism and the flag and all that kind of stuff the preeminent idea of selling it. It was a huge, huge marketing thing that took place even to the point to where President Eisenhower decided we're going to put in God we trust all our money. Right. What was that book? I, I think I read it even. I can't remember it. The great, uh, the great something that it was so detailed about how happened. Mm -hmm. And my point here is that what we're saying is capitalism, the use of stuff for us, is ingrained in the idea of God. It's blessed. Mm. So, you know, God bless us because look, I got all this stuff. Mm. And you'll hear that from people. Right. You'll hear, they won't, they won't say, God bless me, I got enough to eat. Mm. They'll say, God bless me, look what I did, or what I got, or look how my business is flourishing mm -hmm. without, without uh, ideal consequence. Mm. And that comes, from, that comes from our generation, you know, the generation before us, because we were born in the 50s. And I'll tell you, it was a big deal. Now we can't we can't untangle it. It's so difficult. Nah. We might as well go home, No. I just no. check it, bro. Right, no, I mean I mean they, you can't you can't you can't follow Jesus and be wrapped in a flag of any nation. And I think that appears to be blasphemy to many people because they so tightly oh, yeah. you know, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. Just replace Trump with anyone, right? And that is still an, always an untrue. You know, having an American flag and saying Jesus is my savior, and and such and such is my, you know, like those are incompatible. You've created an incompatibility. It's just, but but it's so ingrained in our culture now. That's a whole another topic, and it's interesting because like this, this set of essays, and even this essay we're reading. This is, this is the agrarian essays of William Berry. He, he has spoken more critically of the culture overall and has even spoken to pro-life things and some of these other things. Um, but it's, it's interesting that you, you can just land on his agrarian. And that's why I call this the spiritual vision of William Berry is because he is, he is sort of, he's not just talking about agrarian things and creation. He's talking about a holistic way of, of living. He's talking about work. He's talking about economy. He's talking about community. He's talking about the, how the body of Christ is functioning and how, you know, all this stuff, right? It's like if we can, it's so much almost, it's, it's, you feel like maybe you're going to explode, right? Um, any other comments and then we'll move on real quick. In, in, his, in his fiction, 
the, the, the people who live in this community have a, a name. I can't remember it. They have a name, what do you mean? It, it's just a, a nickname that they call themselves, the people who live in this. Oh, the membership. The membership, the membership. yeah. The membership, <laughs> which is now a podcast, by the way, about Lemon Berry. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. I'm throwing all kinds of plugs out, and I don't, I don't mean to sound like I'm trying to sell all these, you know. I don't get any kickbacks for mentioning any of these things. Just, it's just the membership, right, right? Right. Which is, I think, if you could sum up Wendell, Wendell Berry's vision, it's that you cannot walk with God and be in the world and not understand that you are a part of a membership. Mm -hmm. You know, and he, he articulates that in his fiction pretty, pretty clearly. Because I feel like each character in his fiction is just another part of him, mm. and and what and his family that have lived this way for generations. Mm -hmm. Some people have accused him of romanticizing um, sort of rural community. Um, it's it's hard to maybe agree with that in some ways. Again, I'm not well versed in his, his mm -hmm. fiction, but. Um, but I think there's murder in his fiction. There's like immorality. There, you know what I mean? Like it's these hard. are not all clean characters. Right, no, not at all. It's hard. It's a hard life. <coughs> not an easy life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's harder too. In a, in a rural community, you get to know the people, and, and you see that man. There's a lot of dark. There's a lot of dark stuff, and. You know, you, you have a run-in with someone in the community and, and they pull out a sword and, <coughs> and try to cut your head off. And, you, you know, I've had that happen, you know, where it's just like, I'm sorry that I seem like an enemy to you. I just, you know, it's just like. When Christians separated themselves from the kingdom, the whole idea of being part of a kingdom mm -hmm. and made them this, our kingdom, right. our country, that puts everything in a different perspective as right. to what the now we've got to make sure our laws are all what we want them to be because this is this our is kingdom. the kingdom right. So it lost the whole picture altogether. Yeah, at the beginning, he talks about the renewal of Christianity. I'm very interested in that. Very interested in the idea of we have approached a moment when when there is needed a, a great renewal of actual Christianity rather than, you know, America is, is the kingdom of God, you know, and, and other distortions, right? Um, all right, we're going to move on. Um, this is part four. This is, this is going to, this is going to get under your skin a little bit. Um, not, I, you. <laughs> not you. Oh, you got your coat on now, so you might be shielded a little bit. Nah, I'm, I'm, I'm on the guy's side, man. He's like, mm. So am I, but he's still. He's just like, oh, <laughs> my little punch me in the gut. I've been talking, of course, about a dualism that manifests itself in several ways as a cleavage, a radical discontinuity between creator and creature, spirit and matter, religion and nature, religion and economy worship and work, and so on. This dualism, I think, is the most destructive disease that afflicts us. In its, best, in its best known, its most dangerous, and perhaps its fundamental version, it is the dualism of body and soul. This is an issue as difficult as it is important, and so to deal with it, we should start at the beginning. 
The crucial test is probably Genesis 2-7, which gives the process by which Adam was created. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. My mind, like most people's, has been deeply influenced by dualism, and I can see how dualistic minds deal with this verse. They conclude that the formula for man-making is man equals body plus soul. The formula there is soul equals dust plus breath. According to this verse, God did not make a body and put a soul into it like a letter into an envelope. He formed man of dust. Then by breathing his breath into it, he made the dust live. By the way, this is a more Hebrew understanding of, of the human person. The dust formed as man and made to live did not embody a soul. It became a soul. Soul here refers to the whole creature. Humanity is thus presented to us in Adam, not as a creature of two discrete parts, temporarily glued together, but as a single mystery. We can see how easy it is to fall into the dualism of body and soul when talking about the inescapable worldly dualities of good and evil or time and eternity. And we can see how easy it is when Jesus asked, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? To assume that he is condemning the world and appreciating the disembodied soul. But if we give to soul here the sense that it has in Genesis 2-7, we see that he's doing no such thing. He is warning that in pursuit of so-called material possessions, we can lose our understanding of ourselves as living souls, that is, as creatures of God, members of the holy community of creation. We can lose the possibility of the atonement of that membership, for we are free if we choose to make a duality of our, of our one living soul by disowning the breath of God that is our fundamental bond with one another and with other creatures. But we can make the same duality by disowning the dust. The breath of God is only one of the divine gifts that make us living souls. The other is the dust. Most of our modern troubles come from our misunderstanding and misevaluation of this dust. Forgetting that the dust, too, is a creature of the Creator, made by descending forth of His Spirit, we have presumed to decide that the dust is low. We have presumed to say that we are made of two parts, a body and a soul, the body being low because made of dust in the soul heart. <coughs> By thus valuing these two supposed to be parts, we inevitably throw them into competition with, it, with each other, like two corporations. The spiritual view, of course, has been the spiritual quote-unquote view, of course, has been that the body, in Yeats' phrase, in Yeats' phrase, must be bruised to pleasure soul. And the secular quote-unquote version of the same dualism has been that the body, along with the rest of the material world, must give way before the advance of the human mind. The dominant religious view for a long time has been that the body is a kind of script issued by the great company store in the sky, which can be cashed in to redeem the soul, but is otherwise worthless. And the predictable result has been a human creature able to appreciate or tolerate only the spiritual or mental part of creation and full of semi-conscious hatred of the physical or natural part, which it is ready and willing to destroy for salvation, 
for profit, for victory, or for fun. This madness constitutes the norm of modern humanity and of modern Christianity. But to despise the body or mistreat it for the sake of the soul is not just to burn one's house for the insurance, <coughs> nor is it just self-hatred of the most deep and dangerous sort. It is yet another blasphemy. It is to make nothing, and worse than nothing, of the great something in which we live and move and have our being. When we hate and abuse the body and its earthly life and joy for heaven's sake, what do we expect? That out of this life that we have presumed to despise, in this world that we have presumed to destroy, we would somehow salvage a soul capable of eternal bliss? And what do we expect? When with equal and opposite ingratitude we try to make of the finite body an infinite reservoir of dispirited and meaningless pleasures. Times may, come, times may come, of course, when the life of the body must be denied or sacrificed. Times when the whole world must literally be lost for the sake of one's life as a living soul. But such sacrifice by people who truly respect and revere the life of the earth and its creator does not denounce or degrade the body, but rather exalts it and acknowledges its holiness. Such sacrifice is a refusal to allow the body to serve what is unworthy of it. End chapter 4, or part 4. Dallas Willard makes that point in the book called The Spiritual Disciplines. He says that people have been taught so much from Paul that uh, there's nothing good in us at all. Nothing whatsoever. And so people run around He says, but the redeemed body is the tool of the Spirit. And it's the avenue that we use for disciplines. And it's the, it's the thing that God has given us to experience Him in. And He takes a whole different picture of it. You know? Yeah. I think we've distorted Paul completely. I do. Th I'm, I'm, I hear him saying that in there. And that's what I thought of. I, I, I like that when the Lord says, oh, man, this is your instrument. Go play the instrument. Let God teach you how to play this. Is that on cross currents? Yeah. Oh. So it might be those talks that were given is different than what was written in another place. He has the advanced grass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knew that there were like uh, <laughs> translations of, of this talk? You know, it's like the, the NIV and the. You know. doesn't, yours doesn't have an outline. <laughs> one you, is one is his lecture notes that he prepared ahead of time, and one is the actual spoken speech. <laughs> Because I have parts, and that doesn't have parts in it. Yeah. You know, like right. it, this splits it up into. Mm -hmm. So do you have more or less than more. that? What I'm saying. A little bit more. You have more. Yeah. Weird. That's so weird. Didn't know that. Huh. I should be reading through that. But it doesn't have parts. It doesn't have parts, so I couldn't break it up. So. Well, it says Jason's going to stop right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're a kid, you have the the follow along, and you're like, bing. Yeah. 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 Um, so, for the sake of time, 
I am going to just read um, the beginning of this part five, um, and, then, and then we're going to stop, just because we're coming to the end of our time. Um, if we credit the Bible's description of the relationship between creator and creation, then we cannot deny the spiritual importance of our economic life. Then we must see how religious issues lead to issues of economy, and how issues of economy lead to issues of art. By art, I mean all the ways by which humans make the things they need. If we understand that no artist, no maker, can work except by reworking the works of creation, then we see that by our work, we reveal what we think of the works of God. How we take our lives from this world, how we work, what work we do, how well we use the materials we use, and what we do with them after we have used them, all these are questions of the highest and gravest religious significance. In answering them, we practice or do not practice our religion. The significance and ultimately the quality of the work we do is determined by our understanding of the story in which we are taking part. Let me read that again. The significance and ultimately the quality of the work we do is determined by our understanding of the story in which we are taking part. If we think of ourselves as merely biological creatures whose story is determined by genetics or environment or history or economics or technology, then however pleasant or painful the part we play, it cannot matter much. Its significance is that of mere self-concern. It is a tale... He's quoting... Uh, <laughs> It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, as Macbeth says, when he is sucked full with horrors and is aweary of the sun. If we think of ourselves as lofty souls trapped temporarily in lowly bodies in a dispirited, desperate, unlovable world that we must despise for heaven's sake, then what have we done for this question of significance? If we divide reality into two parts, spiritual and material, and hold as the Bible does not hold, that only the spiritual is good or desirable, then our relation to the material creation becomes arbitrary, having only the quantitative or mercenary value that we have, in fact, and for this reason, assigned to it. Thus, we become the judges and inevitably the destroyers, the destroyers of a world we did not make, and that we are bidden to understand as a divine gift. It is impossible to see how good work might be accomplished by people who think that our life in this world either signifies nothing or has only a negative significance. <clears throat> I'm going to end with this. This is the last part. If, on the other hand, we believe that we are living souls, God's dust and God's breath, acting our parts among other creatures, all made of the same dust and breath as ourselves. And if we understand that we are free, within the obvious limits of mortal human life, to do evil or good to ourselves and to the other creatures, then all our acts have a supreme significance. If it is true that we are living souls and morally free, then all of us are artists. All of us are makers. Within mortal terms and limits of our lives, of one another's lives, of things we need and use. Farther down, he says, work connects us both to creation and to eternity. And I think that's that's really what 
for me is why I find Wendell Berry so compelling is because he's connecting the dots. He's connecting the dots, and when you connect the dots between all these different things, you start to see a picture that you didn't see before. You know, it, it brings things back into unity that, you know, Jesus was teaching about, it's all in Scripture, the kingdom of God, and elsewhere he's spoken of the kingdom of God as God's economy. Comments? How many more sections are there in that? There's a lot more on here. So, yeah, it's, it's about uh, one, two, three, it's only four more pages, but, I mean, we, we have a little bit of time. I could, I could push and try to get to the end. I don't know if that matters to you or not. I just, what I wanted to do was present the main arguments that he was bringing forth, and I feel like we've hit most of them. I'd like to talk about that last one for a little bit. Yeah. But at least myself. I'd like to hear what people have to thought about. You know, thought about. Do they see do you see yourself as an artist? I am an artist, so it's. <laughs> I know you are. It's, but, that, but he said he's. But he. But he. he actually he's, said that. He said everyone. And he quotes a Hindu guy there, uh, in one paragraph. Yeah, he says this. Uh, uh, this Anandu Koraswami wrote is the normal view, which assumes not that the artist is a special kind of man, but that every man who is not a mere idler or parasite is necessarily some special kind of artist. But since even mere idlers and parasites may be said to work inescapably by proxy or influence, it might be better to say that everybody is an artist, either good or bad, responsible or irresponsible. Any life, by working or not working, by working well or poorly, inescapably changes other lives and so changes the world. This is why our division of the fine arts from craftsmanship and craftsmanship from labor is so arbitrary, meaningless, and destructive. As Walter Schuring rightly said, both the plowman and the potter have a cosmic function, and bad art in any trade dishonors and damages creation. That's, that's, huge. that's a really that's good... Huge. No, it's, it, he's talking about the smallest thing, you know. It's like, it just seems... And that's, that's so much of, of what what the institutional religion does in a lot of places. It, it's, it, it, it takes the, it just puts it in the box, you know, once again. And someone can't go out and live a life and, and do things that are good, whether they're a farmer or a craftsman. The church we were involved in up, up in, the, I told you about the Brethren thing mm -hmm. in India. Man, I mean, one of the most godly people I've met in my life was a telephone lineman, you know. Mm -hmm. God, he was just people who do good stuff. You know, and do the hardest that way. I just think that's really cool myself to be able to look at it that way. He's, he's defining work, good work, as, as art. And he's saying that everyone has, he's saying Second Peter chapter 1, too, where, you know, everyone is a partaker, at least Christians are partakers of the divine nature. Mm -hmm. Everyone. Mm -hmm. You have everything pertaining to life and godliness. You're, that's it right there. Mm -hmm. Just go. 
I don't know if it's in here, but he says basically um, he goes on about art and he he, mm-hmm. he talks about vocation somewhat, um, and he says that basically it's not possible. Um, in denying the holiness of the body and of the so-called physical reality of the world and in denying support to the good economy, the good work by which alone the creation can receive due honor, modern Christianity generally has cut itself off from both nature and culture. Most modern churches look like they were built by robots without reference to the heritage of church architecture or respect for the place. They embody no awareness that work can be worshipped. Um, Modern Christianity then has become as specialized in its organizations as other modern organizations, wholly concentrated on the industrial shibboleths of growth, counting its success in numbers, and on the very strange enterprise of saving the individual isolated and disembodied soul. Having witnessed and abetted the dismemberment of the households, both human and natural by which we have our being as creatures of God, as living souls, and having made light of the great feast and festival of creation to which we were bidden as living souls, the modern church presumes to be able to save the soul as an eternal piece of private property. He goes on to say that, that we can't... Um, it's a, I think it's in here somewhere. That you, you, you can't... Uh, I don't know. I feel like we would have read it by now. But, but the idea that your vocation... Your vocation... If you're honoring God, you cannot participate in a vocation that is is destructive or, you know, like you were saying, like mountaintop removal or something, like that you would not be able to participate in certain kinds of vocation because it just would not. So he, he's bringing up the idea of all. He's connecting art to good work and the idea of, of work connecting us with creation and eternity. And it's just like a lot of very powerful things that, that like you said it, like it boils down to like when you wake up in the morning and you're like what am I going to do today you're like alright I have a job you know I'm working for someone or I'm working for myself or I'm raising kids or whatever and it's like do we feel a sense of significance or do we feel a sense of like soul crushing like bleeding out that we're just like what is what am I doing with my life you know do we, do we feel that joy or not um He's accusing modern Christianity of, of some very significant things that that we, we should not be participants in. <laughs> I wonder if anyone was left sitting in the audience at the end of this. That's what I'm saying. There had to be squirming. Had to be squirming. I, I don't think they just sat there and they were like... Oh, they were parsing. No, no, no. no. You, they what? Oh, they were parsing. No, that's, that's what you do in seminary. No, they were sitting there and they were, they were looking at the shallow sides. They were thinking about the scriptures come against things. Yeah. No, there was a lot of that going on. And yeah. they talked about it afterwards. I would have loved and it. There, there, were people, there, were, there were people there who didn't have the first clue what he was talking about. Right. Or, or real examples of what he was talking about. Just being, was they, they, they would have needed, okay, tell me how I'm doing that because I don't see how I'm doing right, that. Right, right. That's not me. Not, right. And you got people right there who are, I mean, when I left, when I left seminary and started in a corporate 100 environment, that was like a massive shock to my system, you know, because in the seminary, everybody's talking about the latest book, you know, or talking about theological 
whatevers, Nazis, you know, stuff. But they don't talk about that stuff in the corporate 100 or whatever. Mm. And so he's sitting there telling people who are training for the ministry mm. that every morning's job is sacred. Mm. That's the stuff that's in the skin. skin. <laughs> it starts the whole laity and yeah, clergy I mean, that, thing. That, you know, that's yeah. what I, I'm saying. Yeah. That's yeah. what he's nailing there. Yeah. Abol- the, abolish the laity, right? Well, the sharp people would have picked up on it. That's what I've heard it. Yeah. You guys do. Yeah. That's yeah. everybody's job. You, you know he knows how to say just enough, you know, in, in, in his, he, to his audience. He, he's, he's, he, he puts the knife just far enough without, you know, without killing them. Um, he, he goes on to talk about government. Um, he says, Jesus would have been horrified by just about every Christian, quote-unquote, government the world has ever seen. He would be horrified by our government and its works, and it would be horrified by him. Surely no sane and thoughtful person can imagine any government of our time sitting comfortably at the feet of Jesus while he's saying, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. No, you can't preach about that stuff. You know that. <laughs> he says, modern Christianity, uh, despite its protests to the contrary, modern Christianity has become willy-nilly the religion of the state and the economic status quo. And again, imagine the audience, he's saying this too. Because it has been so exclusively dedicated to encanting anemic souls into heaven, it has been made the tool of much earthly villainy. It has, for the most part, stood silently by while a predatory economy has ravaged the world, destroyed its natural beauty and health, divided and plundered its human communities and households. It has flown the flag and chanted the slogans of empire. Um, In its de facto alliance with Caesar, Christianity connives directly in the murder of creation. The religion of the Bible, on the contrary, is a religion of the state and the status quo only in brief moments. In practice, it is a religion for the correction equally of people and of kings. And Christ's life, from the manger to the cross, was an, aff- was an affront to the established powers of his time, just as it is to the established powers of our time. Much is made in churches of the good news of the Gospels. Less is said of the gospel's bad news, which is that Jesus would have been horrified <laughs> by just about every Christian government. And he goes on. What's and the name of that book again? This book? Yeah. It's called The Art of the Commonplace, The Agrarian Essays of Wendell Berry. And again, some of these essays show up in other volumes. Okay. But um, this is... <laughs> I'm just thinking of so many of Jesus' parables were based on nature and farming and and the land. And today, how many people would just not even understand? Just all the things about being a shepherd and how that even applies to Mm -hmm. their understanding of Scripture. Right. And how that would even apply to them. Yeah. I mean, it was 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 an agricultural Mm -hmm. society. I mean, very very much. We're so far from it now, but... That part has to be really hard for especially young people to understand. Yeah, and that's why I wonder, you know, what how far do we go in pushing 
people into agrarian life. Um, I've struggled with this. I've had friends when I, I've kind of presented to them, like, here's the kind of way that I feel like God's calling me to live. And they're like, well, I don't you know, does God really want me to grow a garden and have this sort of agrarian elements of my life? And it's like, I don't know. I don't know how to frame it, except that, you know, reading Wendell Berry, he's basically saying, you know, there's really no division between you and your participation in creation. You know, it's just, are you doing it well or are you doing it badly? But see, our, our, the lie that we live in, the frame that we live in is, we go outside, we get in a car, we go home, we get hungry, we go to the store, and we pick it off the shelf, you know, and, and very less often are we actually growing our own food. So it's like, if Wendell Berry was sitting here, he'd say, well, you know, it's not that some people are agrarian and some people aren't. It's, you know, how, how are you participating? Are you participating well in your, in your involvement in God's creation or not? Is it bad or is it good? You know what I mean? Like, like what is your, how are you living it out? Because everyone is agrarian. That's what we don't understand. It's not for a few people. It's that everyone is dependent on the earth. Mm -hmm. Everyone comes from the earth. Everyone's dependent on the earth. Everyone has to eat food that comes from the earth. But it's like, we just go, oh, that's not me. It's difficult. I was talking to a friend of mine. I was talking to who lived up in Northern Virginia in a a very large house. Of course, it was hard for him to hear that somehow he would be required to I don't know, keep a garden or have chickens or something. You know, it, it does sound a little outlandish, and that's not what I'm saying. Well, why is it? Why is that a premise? We're going to go here and say, but why is that the premise of a garden? Why are you mentioning that? Just the idea that, like Wendell Berry is writing as a, and like these essays are is sort of, um, he has this these elements of agrarian. Uh, if you take all these essays together, including this one, he's he's saying. You have, it's not that, that you have a connection to creation, it's that there's, um, uh, you are a member of, of the whole creation community. Well, I get that, Robert, but you mentioned the garden, so if I'm the guy, why can't the guy up in Northern Virginia have a, have a job that, that uh, utilizes uh, the environment in a, in a way that actually benefits the environment? spends his time in a God-honoring way doing that when someone else is doing the garden. I think you're right, but I think I don't know. I think I, I don't know what to say to anyone to say you, you, you have to choose uh, here are the ways that you choose a good way of living in the world. I, I don't know how much of that is particip- participatory and how much of that is you know, it's, it's sort of I have I'm doing this with my my living my living you know making an mm-hmm. income and then I'm I'm doing this to support people grow because I I support I don't grow my own food you know when we did grow our own food it wasn't all of our own food it's always been my goal to do that I, I'm saying I don't know what is required of any of us except that we at least need to be aware that we are dependent on people who are growing 